everyone. Welcome back to Bad on Politics. I'm Grace Atwood. And I'm Becca Freeman. And if you're new here, Bad on Politics is our monthly political series where we talk to an expert, ask the dumb questions, and get answers for you. So today we are joined by Kelly Robinson, and Kelly is the executive director of the Planned Parenthood Action Fund. And prior to joining Planned Parenthood in 2011, Kelly began her career as an organizer for Obama for America in 2008, later refining her skills as a regional organizer for Planned Parenthood of the Heartland, and then as the national field manager for URGE. So outside of Planned Parenthood, Kelly serves on the board of Sister Song, the largest national women of color reproductive justice collective, as well as the vice chair of the board of the Alliance for Youth Action. Welcome, Kelly. Hey, thanks for having me, y'all. We're so excited to talk to you. We have so many questions, and I feel like the topic is more timely than ever, given the, the case in front of the Supreme Court right now. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, fire away. Well, to get started, I want to talk a little bit about Planned Parenthood because I feel like there are some misconceptions and I want to get those out of the way. So I guess first, can you explain to us what's the difference between Planned Parenthood for America and the Planned Parenthood Action Fund? Absolutely. Well, Planned Parenthood is actually made up of hundreds of organizations across the country, but all of these organizations are tied together by a central mission. And that's to protect access to women's rights and reproductive health care and education, no matter what. And I can say for me, um, you know, when I was growing up, I grew up in Chicago, Illinois, and the Planned Parenthood Health Center there meant so much. It wasn't just a place where I went for reproductive health services. It was a trusted provider of information, period. And when I think about what the organization's about, it's about just that, making sure that people have all of the information to make decisions about their lives. Now, I will say, you asked specifically what's the difference between Planned Parenthood Action Fund and Planned Parenthood Federation of America. Um, the Action Fund's job specifically, that's where I work, is to make sure that those health centers like the one I talked about in Chicago, Illinois, where I grew up, um, that their doors stay open. What we do is make sure that the right to access health care is available for folks no matter how much money you have, no matter where you live, or no matter what your identity is. Amazing. Can we talk a little bit about the funding structure? How is Planned Parenthood funded and what is that funding being used for? Absolutely. I mean, at the end of the day, we are a healthcare, Planned Parenthood is a healthcare provider first and foremost. Our goal is to ensure that people get access to the healthcare services that they need. So oftentimes when people ask that question, they're really asking, are federal funds being used on abortion care? And the answer unequivocally is no. That's the law of the land, that federal funds cannot be used on abortion care. However, what we do do is a full range, provide a full range of healthcare services to folks so that they can make the best decisions about them for themselves about their bodies. Those services include everything from uh, making sure that you can get your annual exams to ensure that you're healthy and ready to go, um, to STI screenings, to providing birth control, um, and even doing sex education work out in the community. So we really do provide all of those resources for folks um, in a variety of ways to make sure that people have access to the care that they need. And I, I read a stat somewhere about the number of pap smears that Planned Parenthood gave kind of on an annual basis. I don't know if you know that off the top of your head, but that was staggering to me in terms of just like the scope of care that you're giving in communities. <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, we are out here providing care every single day in communities across the country. In fact, Planned Parenthood affiliates across the country have provided nearly 5 million STI tests and treatments. 
and 2.5 million contraceptive services for patients in 2019 alone. Wow. Wow. That's crazy. So now that we got some of the Planned Parenthood background out of the way, what I want to talk about is in 2019, we saw a lot of state legislation around abortion rights. And one thing I'm curious to have you explain to us is what is the legal basis for abortion rights and what can a state legislate versus what is legislated nationally um, by the Supreme Court and, and kind of by Roe v. Wade? Ooh, that is a great question. Um, so let me start with the Supreme Court um, and just some of the foundational pieces. Um, the Supreme Court and other federal courts across the country and countless illegal experts have agreed for more than 40 years, <laughs> more than 40 years that the United States Constitution extends the right to an abortion to every American. I think that that's really important that those entities have made that have agreed on that decision that the United States Constitution actually extends the right to an abortion for every American. However, I think what we're seeing now in 2019 is states doing a lot to pass laws and policies to restrict access to abortion care at the state level. And really what they're trying to do there is push more cases down the pipeline to the Supreme Court to try to undermine that shared agreement that has been true in this country for more than 40 years, that the Constitution extends a right to an abortion for every American. So we're really doing a lot to make sure that we're raising awareness about this issue, to engage people on this front, because at the end of the day, abortion care is a part of health care. And we want to make sure that everyone has access to the full range of health care. Um, just to make sure I understand you, at the state level, it sounds like they're more so passing restrictions versus full out bans on abortion to make it harder for people to get abortions. But because of Roe v. Wade, can they flat out just say, like, no one can get one in this state? How does that work? <laughs> That's a really good question. So I want to talk about two things here. Sometimes we talk about access to abortion in the frame of rights? Like, do we have the legal protections to actually be able to access an abortion? Mm -hmm. That's what all of those kind of federal entities like the Supreme Court and federal courts have been in agreement for on more than four years, that the United States Constitution extends the right to an abortion. However, there's this other piece of access, right? Even if I've got the legal right, if if the laws have been passed in my state that have shut down nearly every health center that offers abortion care, I don't really have access to get one. Got if states put in place restrictions, like you have to wait 24 hours um, in order to get your access to abortion care, but you don't have that much time to take off work to, to, to wait 24 hours, um, then that's another kind of burden that we're putting on people to get access to care. And finally, of course, if people don't have the resources to pay for abortion care, that's another kind of layer of burden that we're putting on top of folks to access a health care service. So I say that because, yes, the cons it, there has been agreement in the United States that the Constitution extends the right to abortion care for every American. A lot of times what we're talking about is, do people actually have access to that service? And the laws that are being passed at the state level are putting restriction on top of restriction in front of people to access this critical part of health care to the point where it's really becoming an undue burden. So that's really what's moving through the Supreme Court. There's a case that they're hearing right now out of Louisiana, and there are actually 17 more abortion restriction cases in the pipeline on their way to the Supreme Court, all that are working towards undermining access and rendering Roe v. Wade, that historic um, landmark decision that happened more than 40 years ago, 
uh, meaningless in so many ways. So you said there's 17 cases right now. How many states have passed restrictions on abortion? Oh, another really good question. So I can't say the the number overall. Last year, there were more than 300 abortion restrictions that were introduced in nearly every state in the country. Oh, my goodness. That is massive in terms of numbers. Exactly, right? 300 abortion restrictions were introduced. And then what I always think about is, well, shoot, we're still not getting any relief on our student loans. You know, Why why are folks spending so much time worrying about Um, abortion, or excuse me, restricting access to abortion care in this country. So that's really kind of the state of play for us, looking at that large volume that's happening across nearly every state. And I can't say five of them were quite extreme, where politicians banned abortion after just six weeks of pregnancy. And you all know that's before most people even know they're pregnant. What are some other examples of restrictions that have been, been set at the state level? Yeah, there are some like we call them targeted regulations against abortion providers. Those are all about putting kind of medically unnecessary restrictions on the facilities that provide abortion care that make it almost impossible for us to be able to comply. Um, And again, we see them kind of happening in a number of ways. Six week, you know, the six week abortion ban is just one example. Um, We've seen states uh, try to put forward bans at different numbers of weeks. We've also seen them go as far as criminalizing women who try to seek abortion care and criminalizing doctors that seek to provide care to folks. So this is really an extreme situation that we find ourselves in. I'm so glad that that folks like you are making space to, to talk about the reality of this issue. Now, why 2019? What sparked the legislation activity happening last year? Oh, well, in order to understand 2019, I got to take you all the bit all the way back to 2018. Take us on a journey. Um, take us back. We <laughs> a little journey here. Um, in 2018, y'all might have seen on the news the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. And sure did. <laughs> you did. Do you remember? Like people were turning out in the streets. I mean, there was so much energy around it because of two things. One, um, because Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court was really going to alter the balance of the court and make it a conservative institution, an an institution that we know makes a lot of decisions on things that impact our lives, like access to abortion care. The other reason why folks were really coming out and expressing anger about the nomination of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court is because of the credible allegations of sexual assault um, that were put forth against him in the course of his nomination. Uh, I'm saying that because this ended up being a real kind of um, moment for women across this country to speak up and speak out on why access to abortion care matters and also really just understanding the nature of what we have to do to protect rights for folks who identify as women in this country. But when Brett Kavanaugh got to the Supreme Court, the bottom line is that people started putting, the state saw this as an opportunity um, to really be emboldened, right? We saw anti-abortion politicians who were excited about this new person on the Supreme Court because that gave them an opportunity to pass laws at the state level that might have a chance of not only getting to the Supreme Court, but having a ruling that would likely undermine or gut Roe v. Wade, that historic piece, uh, that historic decision by the Supreme Court um, that really does solidify access to abortion rights in this country. Um, So that's where we are now. So on March 4th, the Supreme Court heard arguments about a Louisiana abortion law that you just mentioned. Can you explain that a little more to us? Absolutely. So the 
the arguments that the Supreme Court just heard, gosh, March 4th was just last week. Um, that case is just another example and really the latest example of a case that could gut the protections of Roe, right? The protections that get that really do re, um, define how the Constitution extends the right to abortion access for every American. And I think what it made clear to me is that access to abortion care is hanging on by a thread in so many places across this country. In this case, it's in the pipeline, is the one that could snap it. Um, you know, at its heart, the case is really about whether states can restrict abortion to the point that it is inaccessible, right, which would render Roe v. Wade meaningless. Um, and we talked about the difference between rights and access a little bit before, and this is one of those questions of access. The other thing that I think is really important for folks to know is that just four years ago, the Supreme Court heard a very similar case, almost really an identical case out of Texas, and decided that laws like the one in Louisiana had no purpose other than to make abortion access more difficult. So the fact that they're rehearing this case is cause for concern because the only reason that it's made its way back up is because the balance of people on the Supreme Court have changed. So this is really an opportunity for folks to kind of be aware of the types of policies and laws that are moving their way through and speak up and speak out. Because the thing that I always want to remember is that even though this is a Supreme Court case, you and me, regular people in cities across this country, we have a role to play to really show where the American public is and show that people are going to fight for access to the full range of health care, including abortion, no matter what. And what is the specific Louisiana law in question? Yeah, there's a couple of pieces to it. I think the easiest way to describe it is that the core of the argument is whether or not the law that's in front of the court is taking away access to, to abortion care facilities to the point that it make, that puts an undue burden on um, patients that would be seeking care. That's kind of the bottom line of it. And I think what the Supreme Court needs to define is really what does an undue burden look like? Um, and I got to say, one of my, my favorite, RBG, uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, uh, on the court really has a fantastic um, piece that she put out um, on the last time that the court heard a similar case in Whole Women's Health that really does get into the weeds. But the core question that they're trying to answer is, does um, this law reduce abortion access? Does this law limit abortion access in such a way that it puts an undue burden on patients to access care? Got it. So they heard arguments on March 4th, but what happens next? Absolutely. Well, next, we are going to be waiting for a minute. Uh, we've got to wait for a decision that will likely come down sometime this summer. But in the meantime, we've got to continue to fight, right? Next month, the, Su the Supreme Court is actually going to be hearing arguments in another case about whether companies can deny co coverage of birth control for their employees. Uh, and later this year, the court's also going to be hearing arguments um, that could gut the protections that we've gotten under the Affordable Care Act. So I'm saying that to say that we got to kind of keep our eyes on what's going on and continue to speak up and speak out, even though the decision on this particular case out of Louisiana won't come till June. There are so many other cases like the one about birth control or the one about the Affordable Care Act that will have such an impact on our ability to access care, not just today, but for the next generation. I know you're not necessarily a Supreme Court expert, but why does it take so long to get a decision? Do you know? That's a great question. I am not a Supreme Court expert, but I can definitely ask our um, litigation experts a little bit more about that. 
Um, they generally have seasons like the spring season where they he do hearings on a bunch of um, cases and then the decisions come out in June. Uh, my understanding is that behind the scenes, they're doing a lot to figure out what the legal foundations will be for the decisions that they render in June. But always happy to get one of our litigators to share more on those specific processes. I would love to hear more. We can yeah. we can put that information in our Facebook group for anyone who's also interested in the answer to that question. And Kelly, what are some of the repercussions that are going to depend on the outcome of all this? Um, that one is a is it feels far reaching. I, it does, and it's such a challenging question for me to answer because, you know, in so many ways, there is so much on the line here. Because if the Supreme Court sides with Louisiana right? It could actually open the floodgates to abortion restrictions all across the country and just change the nature of healthcare. Because, I mean, we've got to be clear, right? Abortion access and more broadly reproductive rights, including things like access to birth control, it is really hanging on by a thread right now. I think that the repercussions here, if the Supreme Court sides with Louisiana, it can open the floodgates to abortion restrictions across the country. And, you know, you know, and I know that abortion access and really more broadly reproductive rights are hanging on by a thread. And again, this could be one of those cases that puts us in an even worse off position. And, you know, I feel like for, for me and my job, I, I talk to folks all the time, all across the country about why access to Planned Parenthood matters, why access to abortion care matters. And people always say that they want to make sure that their families and their communities are better off tomorrow than we are today. If the Supreme Court sides with Louisiana, this could be one of those moments where healthcare access or access to abortion in this country is worse off tomorrow than it was 40 years ago. And that's not the reality that we want. That's not the reality that we're fighting for. And that's not the reality that any of us deserve. Absolutely. Kelly, can we switch topics for a minute? Can can we talk about Title X? Absolutely. Can you tell us what it is first? Sure. So Title X is the nation's program for family planning. It specifically covers uh, services related to birth control and reproductive health care. And it's a program that's literally been around for decades. It's got bipartisan support. Millions of people, I think 4 million people actually access care through the program every year. So can you explain to us what happened in 2019 with Trump's gag rule on Title X? Yeah, yeah. So in 2019, the Trump-Pence administration actually forced Planned Parenthood and other providers out of the Title X program by imposing a gag rule on what doctors could tell their patients about abortion services. Can you believe that? Um, and the Trump-Pence gag rule at its core, it's unethical. Uh, Planned Parenthood was forced out of the program because we refused to, to be bullied into withholding abortion information from Planned Parenthood patients. Because for us, we believe that Planned Parenthood patients should be able to make their own medical decisions and not have to be forced to have the Trump administration make those decisions for them. So forcing us out of that program has meant that this administration has really put reproductive health care out of reach for millions of people who are struggling to make ends meet, particularly folks of color and people living in rural communities. So does that mean that if I access my birth control through Title X, I can no longer get it through Planned Parenthood? Like what's the, the practical consideration for, you know, somebody who's just a regular citizen? 
Yeah. Well, it's important to say that Planned Parenthood's doors remain open. We're doing all that we can right now to cover the cost of care for Planned Parenthood patients like you who may who may have been getting their care covered by Title 10 to still get access to health care through Planned Parenthood health centers. But I can also say that this is something that the impact is going to be felt more and more over time because Planned Parenthood health centers serve 40% of all Title 10 patients, 40%. And these are people who would often um, really not be able to get care anywhere else or go without care if they didn't have access to a Planned Parenthood. So right now we're doing all that we can to cover the cost of services for folks um, who may have been using that program. And we're also doing all that we can to fight to get the administration to remove this unethical gag rule and allow providers like us who just want to provide the highest quality of care to our patients to, to be to be able to be a part of the program again. So what does it mean? How does how how does Planned Parenthood get back in the program? Yeah, I mean it's gonna be a fight, right? And to be honest with you, the Title X program was created decades ago, I think in the 70s, right? And healthcare looked just different in 1970 than it does today in the year 2020. So for us, we think about a few things. One, Title X needs to be um, redefined and reformed to be a program that operates in healthcare as it as it's served to people today. So we've been working with organizations across the country to really re-envision what that could look like moving forward. Two, we got to make sure that we're working to get people in office and understand the value of getting access to comprehensive healthcare and giving people the information that they deserve, not putting gags on doctors that doesn't allow them to tell patients a full range of information about their to make their own medical decisions. That's important. That's going to be a long fight. But we're excited because I feel like people are really activated and engaged on this issue um, and are ready to make sure that we find that we are no longer forced out of the program and find in the coming years a way to get back in and a way to redefine the program to serve people in an even better way um, today. Um, so should we can we switch gears a little bit to talk about reproductive rights and the 2020 election, which we're kind of in the thick of right now? We sure are. Um, so. I'm really curious, during the election cycle, what are the key issues being talked about around reproductive health and what should we be watching out for? Yeah. I mean, I think it's clear that every voter wants to know more about health care and whoever is and for anyone that wants to be president of this country, they've got to define what they're going to do to ensure that every American has access to health care. And at the same time, to ensure that they're thinking about reproductive health care and abortion as a critical part of the infrastructure of health care. I mean, y'all, just look at what's going on with this global pandemic right now. It is really exposing that there are flaws in our healthcare system. Absolutely. Right, that have to be corrected and fixed. So we've been doing a ton of work to really highlight and uplift this issue. We've been um, asking at every debate we've been participating in this hashtag, ask about abortion. Have y'all seen that? Yeah. Oh, it's been great because it's generating the conversation online that oftentimes is not happening on the screen. And people want to know what are these candidates going to do to protect and expand access to abortion care. I am proud to say that almost every presidential candidate has participated in a Planned Parenthood Action Fund membership event to share their bold plans. Um, And we're going to use that to make sure that uh, we are motivating folks into action and that when 
when we have leadership that reflects the values of our people, that they're ready to start implementing policy that can actually change people's lives. So now at the presidential level, can you break down for us the views of Trump and Biden and Sanders on key reproductive issues? And I'm especially interested if there are any differences between Biden and Sanders, because it seems like Broadly, as we went through the debate cycle, generally everyone was in favor of, you know, reproductive health on the Democratic debate stage. Yeah, yeah. Well, I think there's Biden, Sanders, and then there's Donald Trump. Right. And what we've got to be clear about is that Donald Trump has an atrocious track record on access to reproductive health care, including abortion access. We've already talked about forcing folks like organizations like Planned Parenthood out of the Title X program, um, attacks on birth control access, attacks on abortion access, attacks on everything that matters when it comes to taking care of our health and our bodies. So we've got to be clear that it is very important that we elect a president that understands the value of health care for every American, is willing to fight for it. And that is not going to be Donald Trump. Now, with Biden and Sanders, I think the, the hopeful thing that I see here is that both of them understand that healthcare is a, a top issue for voters. They also understand that actually nearly eight in 10 Americans say that they do not want to see Roe v. Wade overturned. That's why you're seeing them come out boldly and strongly on what their healthcare policies and positions are going to be and how they're going to protect and expand access to care. I think what our job is as people is to continue to ask questions and to continue to tell them our stories so that we can push them even further on these issues to ensure, you know, uh, exactly when they're accountable. But at the ideological level, at least what's been exposed so far, both of them have pretty similar views and both are strongly in favor of reproductive access. That's right. Yes. Democratic candidate has expressed their support for access to safe legal abortion, um, even including repealing the Hyde Amendment, uh, which is the law that restricts public funding for abortion care. And really what that means is that it's putting an economic barrier from people to, for people to access abortion care. Got it. And what about at the state level? Are there any key races that we should be paying attention to at a state level? Yes. All of them. All this of them. <laughs> That's overwhelming. <laughs> I know it can it can seem overwhelming, but I think there's a real opportunity for folks to look up and down the ticket. Turning out and voting for a president of the United States. Oh man, I can't tell you. Of course, everyone knows how much that matters. Also, voting for the Senate matters a lot, right? Because even if you get a pro reproductive health president in office, they're going to need a Senate and a House to be able to work with to pass any laws to actually get work done. In addition, you know, we talked about the state fights landscape a lot and how since 2019, we've seen this onslaught of abortion restrictions and, and anti-abortion bills that are moving through state legislatures. That to me says loud and clear why we've got to be thinking about who's running for governor, people running in the state houses across the country, and even thinking about offices like the Secretary of State that has such a big role in ensuring that folks have access to the vote and are able to, to vote in a way that's accessible and easy. So I think that this is really the year to start kind of educating ourselves about um, races down the ballot and maybe even thinking about, you know, which ones you want to run for someday. I, I love, love that. that. <laughs> oh, jinx. 
Um, are there any in particular that you'd like to shine a light on where, you know, there's either governorships or Senate seats that are in states with abortion restrictions that are, you know, highly contested or, you know, seem very flippable? Yeah, I mean, to be honest with you, uh, every state really does matter. Um, you know, if folks are interested, Planned Parenthood Action Fund has a list of all of our endorsed races um, that people can check out. Oh, where do we uh, find that? Oh, absolutely. PlannedParentheodActionFund.org. Check it out. Um, one of the first links on that page is to our list of endorsed candidates across the country. Um You'll see people like Mark Kelly, who's running in Arizona. Um, he is a former astronaut, which is super cool. And also the husband of Gabby Giffords, a former representative. Um, people like Sarah Gideon in Maine, who's going to be a really pivotal race as she's running to defeat Susan Collins, who's one of the people that really did, that made the vote to get Brett, Brett Kavanaugh on the Supreme Court um, and others. So you can see kind of the full range there. If folks are really looking for something to, to think about that they haven't before, I would encourage folks to be looking at the Senate because really winning, having a majority, a pro-reproductive health majority in the Senate within our grasp. I mean, it's going to be hard, but it's possible. That's one of those ways where in addition to the president, we can protect and expand access to re reproductive health care. So I would really encourage folks to, to check that out and get familiar with the Senate. And the other thing I'll say is to narrow it down. So Senate and that is so a president Senate. And I want folks to also be thinking about who's running at their state level to be in their state legislature. Um, after 2020, we go through a process in this country called redistricting, where we redraw the lines for um, how you elect people, how you um, elect people to represent your community. That's a really important moment where the lines can be drawn in an unfair way that we call gerrymandering that solidifies power for some and not for all. Or we can get people into office now that can draw those lines in a fair way that really does go a long way in ensuring that we have the people's votes can be truly heard. And I think that this is an important moment to get people in the state legislatures across the country that are ready to engage in a fair process um, in a fair redistricting process. Got it. And one question I, I'm really interested in is, so let's say you live in a fairly liberal state, um, but reproductive health access is one of your key issues. How can you best make a difference by, you know, using your time, using your voice to help, you know, across the country or help in other states? Absolutely. Well, first off, every state matters, right? Like some states like California and Hawaii that have pro-reproductive health majorities, what their job is to do is to really start pushing forward policies that can change the reality of healthcare on the ground. Because when California and Washington State and New York do more, it actually shows what's possible through good governance. So there's really a role to play there. Um, and if you're in one of these states and you're already doing that work, uh, there's an opportunity, especially if you're part of the Planned Parenthood Action Fund family, to um, call and talk to folks that are in other states about why it's so important to do this work. Uh, we've got programs where our supporters in, in some of the more liberal states can call into other states and talk to folks to help, one, raise their spirits, but two, remind folks to take action because it matters. And if folks are interested in getting involved in that, uh, the Action Fund has a program called Planned Parenthood Defenders. Uh, where people can sign up to be a part of our virtual organizing work. 
Oh, interesting. That's really interesting. Um, Kelly, what would you say are some of the best resources? And we'll put these in the Facebook group. But if someone wants to learn more um, just about what's currently happening with reproductive rights, besides your website, um, what are some good places we could send people? Yeah, absolutely. So definitely the website. Always have to say that. Um, but also we've got this thing called a reproductive health um, and rights conversation guide, because sometimes, you know, we're we know that we care about these issues, but it can be hard to figure out how do I talk to my one uncle that's always way off message about this? Or how do I talk to my auntie or my friends? Uh, we've got a conversation guide available that I can send you the link to where folks can kind of check it out to just get some tips on how to talk about these issues with people that, you know, maybe you haven't talked about them with yet. I also think that um, telling your story is a really important thing to do. Um, there are some organizations called, there's organizations online that do a lot of storytelling work, mine included, but folks can also test, check out We Testify. Um, it's another organization that does storytelling. Um, and then finally, I think I did talk a lot about how, um, you know, currently there's a uh, federal law in place that restricts um, federal funds from going towards abortion access. And oftentimes what that means is that people can have an economic barrier if you don't have enough money to provide to pay for care. So I also encourage folks to check out the abortion funds. Um, they are excellent in helping people to bridge that gap between the money they have and the money that they need to access care. The National Network of Abortion Funds is another kind of great resource to check out. And I'm assuming we can find this on Planned Parenthood's website, but if, if you want to know what's happening in your state in terms of legislation, is that something we can find on your website? Absolutely. Check out the website. Um, we have a couple of things, the, the Trump tracker that shows kind of the policies that are coming out of this administration and the negative impact that they're having on communities across the country. Um, and then you can also check out there for updates about our website for updates about state fights and to hear more about what's going on in your community. That's amazing. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. You have been so helpful in getting us educated about what's happening in reproductive health right now. And Kelly, yeah, you've thank you so much. You really earned, appreciate it. <laughs> you've earned your own desperation minute, which is something we call on the podcast a moment to just plug whatever you're working on, where people can find and follow you, what they can do for you. Oh my goodness. Oh, I'm sweating. This is so exciting. Um, <laughs> one, uh, wash your hands. This is not a joke out here in these streets. Make sure that you're taking care of yourselves. Um, and two, like, just know that we can do better with healthcare across this country. And that's what this election is all about, making sure that we don't have crises like this that are really showing the breakdowns in our healthcare system. So encourage folks to kind of take that to heart, go out and vote, check out the Planned Parenthood Action Fund website, sign up to be a member, and please, please, please join us. We're going to be mobilizing in June, hopefully after all this passes, um, in person and in the streets around the Supreme Court decisions and doing a lot of virtual activity and engagement leading up to it around some of the upcoming cases that they're hearing. And, you know, I also just want to let folks know that we can win this. Uh, somebody told me justice is what love looks like in public. And I feel like all of this is an exercise in loving on each other enough to believe that we can change this country for the better. So I'm so excited to, to be a part of that with you all. I love that. Thank you so much. Thank you.